Let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Psalms. And this morning, we conclude our summer in the Psalms with Psalm 60. Psalm 60 this morning. And next week, we will return to the book of Exodus together. Psalm 60, as we reflect on this psalm together. We've been in a series of psalms over this summer that have been psalms of lament. And from Psalm 53 through Psalm 59, these psalms of lament have primarily been psalms of lament from when David, from the period of time after David had been anointed, but before David was installed as king. These are psalms of lament primarily of actions that Saul was carrying out against David. But beginning here in Psalm 60, uh, this is the last of the laments, and next summer we'll actually kick back off in Psalm 60. And this psalm today is a psalm of lament, but it's a psalm of lament when David is king. It's easy to lose perspective. It's also easy to allow our perspective to be the primary lens through which we interpret a given situation. So perhaps you're in a position at work, for example, and the boss is just really mean. From your perspective, that is. Uh, Constantly after you. Constantly demanding. And in the back of your mind, you think, you know what, one day, by God's grace, I'm going to be the boss. And when I'm the boss, things will be different. And in God's providence, you make it to be the boss. But while you're the boss, the people under you have the same expression that you had when you were underneath your boss. That is, they perceive you to be mean and angry and demanding. These laments before this psalm were laments from King David when he was not God's anointed. When he was, or when he was God's anointed, but yet not ruling. And sometimes, friends, we're in that position. We view things in a radically different way. And the temptation is to think, well, if I can just get to X, if I can just accomplish Y, If I could just have a change over here at Z, things will be much better. But notice this psalm. Here's a psalm of lament when David is reigning as king. And as David laments in this psalm, it's not just David lamenting. It's the nation of Israel lamenting the situation in which they find themselves. Notice at the very beginning, we have an editorial comment. This is the longest of the editorial comments in the Psalms. 
begins here to the choir master according to Shushan Edith, a mictum of David. A mictum for what purpose? A mictum for instruction. The text of Scripture has intended that you and I would use this psalm as a means of instruction in our lives. When he, that is David, strove with Aram Neharim and with Aram Zobah, and with Joab on his return, struck down 12,000 of Edom in the valley of salt. It's a reflection over a period of time in which David is king, Joab is his right-hand man who's carrying out King David's dictates as regards war, and in the middle of all of this, the Lord is also being very faithful in David's life and with Joab's life, yet at times the nation of Israel finding themselves in defeat. And you'll notice the movement in this psalm. Beginning in verses 1 through 5, the psalmist speaks of a period of time in which the nation of Israel is suffering defeat. In fact, here at the beginning of verse 1, the psalmist cries out and says, Lord, you've rejected us. But you'll notice by the time the psalm ends in verse 12, David has asked in a rhetorical way, Lord, have you rejected us? And the answer is no. God has not rejected his beloved. God has not rejected his people. And so there's this movement even in this psalm, a movement that reflects on a period of time in which the editorial comment notes, but also a period of time that is drastically different than what this editorial comment notes. And we learn this from this text. Believers can hope in God. Believers can hope in God knowing that God both in our victories and in our defeats. Believers can hope in God, knowing that both in our victories and in our defeats, God will grant us victory over our enemies. David notes in this one psalm two periods. A period of defeat, in a period of victory. Hear the defeat in verses 1 through 5. Oh God, you have rejected us. You've broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh God, please restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people's your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You, however, God, have set up a banner. You are that banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, that your beloved that your beloved ones may be delivered, give salvation by your right hand and 
answer us. Israel, in verses one through five in this text, prays for God's deliverance. Israel, under David's leadership, is reflecting on a period of time, we don't know exactly when, but for sure a period of time that is different than the period of time in which the psalmist has given us his editorial comment at the very beginning. The editorial comment at the very beginning reflects on a time in the life of David and Joab when the nation of Israel, on behalf of God, was conquering all peoples. But David begins this psalm not with a reflection on that period of time. David begins this psalm with a reflection in a period of time in which the nation of Israel is being trampled by her enemies. Not only trampled by her enemies, notice how the psalmist understands the situation. For he understands the situation as one in which God himself has rejected his own people. Of course, it's right for David, for the nation of Israel, to assume that their being conquered by other pagan peoples was indeed a statement of judgment from God against his own people. And in fact, even in our own lives today, friends, even as believers... God doesn't reject us in the sense that we're at one moment his child, but because we sin, at another point we're now no longer his child. But even as being a child of God, God will from time to time bring into our lives those moments of correction, and God will use whatever means necessary to gain our attention as believers so that we might return to holiness and to righteousness. The nation of Israel, collectively, is in a moment in which they sense that God has rejected them. Why? Their enemies are having triumph over them. Their enemies are gaining victories over them. The psalmist cries out, Lord, our our defenses have broken. It's as though there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can say. There's nothing we can do. There's no amount of armory that we can gather. Lord, we're in this terrible, desperate situation. Would you please restore? The psalmist understands the point to be one not only of rejection by God, but death at the hands of God. Look what he says in verse 2. You, God, have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. You've seen images from earthquakes before where the land has been torn asunder, torn in two, and the image conjured up from this this language is as though the land has been torn and, and the people have fallen into that place. Lord, you not only rejected us, God, in so many ways, you are leading us to death. But notice what David theologically rightly understands in verse 23. What God is doing at this moment 
is God is pouring out his wrath against his beloved, against his own people, in order to gain their attention, in order for them to return to him. And so David uses this language as though God has given to them this wine, and this wine has made them stagger. This is an image of of God's wrath. God is pouring out his wrath against his people, and they are having to drink the bitter wine that they themselves have trampled out in the wine press. This is the wine that they have made at their own hand, made from their own sin, and that wine is bitter. Filled with my and your own sin. David says, God, you've made us drunk with your vengeance. You, God, have poured out your wrath against us. But notice what David does as he reflects on this period of time in which God is indeed pouring out his wrath as the nation of Israel cries out to God. They make a plea based on God's character. You have set up a banner for those who flee, uh, fear you that they may flee to it from the bow. Go back with me to the book of Exodus. You'll recognize this very, very familiar story in Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. God is going to grant to the nation of Israel defeat over Amalek. Let's read this narrative, beginning in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Ur went up to the top of the hill. And whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand grew weary, so that they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Ur held up his hands on one side, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial and a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the sun. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Both in our victories and in our defeats, God is at work. You notice what David is doing here? He's casting himself on the very character and nature of God as God had revealed himself to the nation of Israel back in Exodus chapter 17. And David, the psalmist, Israel, is making a plea to this same God. 
that those who fear this same God, that that same God, as he was a banner to the people in Moses' day, so too might he be a banner for his people today, a banner of refuge, a banner of salvation, a banner of trust, a banner of hope. Do you see what David is exclaiming? Do you see what the nation of Israel is proclaiming? At the very beginning, a victim for what? Instruction. Friend, may the truth of this word instruct your hearts today. For I promise you that there will be moments in our lives like David when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We will face difficult moments and circumstances in life. Notice what David is instructing us. If you don't purpose in your heart now that you will take refuge, that you will take rest in this God who is our banner, this one in whom we can trust, this one in whom we can cast our cares, Then when these moments of trial and suffering and persecution come our way, it will be, as the hymnist said, prone to wonder, prone to leave the God I love. But David says, God, I know your character. I know exactly who you are. And notice verse 5, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. David knows. The nation of Israel knows. They know that they can cast their care and their hope in God, for He and He alone is the one that provides deliverance for His beloved. Do you notice how David begins this in verse 1? God, you have rejected us. God, you are pouring out your wrath on us. But Lord, I know this one thing. Even in the midst of your correction in our lives, we are still your people. You see how David defines it? That your beloved ones. Friends, if you are in Christ today, God has not rejected you. God will never reject you. But God will punish you. God will chasten you. God will seek to bring about correction in your life. But you can rest assured today that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God if you are today indeed a beloved child of God. Rest. Take comfort and that eternal truth, even as you face a difficult moment. And then notice what Israel does in verses 6 through 8. They confidently express their hope in God. God has spoken in His holiness. 
With exaltation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. Now David, perhaps, is bringing us back to that moment in which this text defines in 2 Samuel chapter 8, in which David and the nation of Israel reigned supreme over all of these enemies of God. But notice what David is ultimately declaring here. Yes, you and I can indeed hope in Christ, in God alone. But David is reminding us that there is a theological foundation upon which we express that confident truth. Did you see it? God and God alone is the reigning, conquering, ruling, all-supreme, all-knowing, all-powerful, divine God over all peoples. He's not just God over Shechem, and he's not just God over Gilead. He is also God over Edom. He's also God over the pagan and foreign nations who do not even believe in him. And David knows that the nation of Israel can take refuge and hope in this God who reigns supreme over all people. David knows ultimately that the reason why God has given him and the nation of Israel and Joab victory from 2 2 Samuel chapter 8 is because he and he alone, God and God alone, reigns supreme over all peoples. This is not a new narrative or new understanding for the nation of Israel, for we go all the way back to God's promises to Abram in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, we see that God has given a promise (coughs) to Abram, that Abram would indeed be the father of how many nations? Of how many peoples? Of all. Even these foreign pagan nations who pride themselves in their own might, in their own strength, in their own well-being, the nation of Israel exclaims, yes, even you are under the power of God. Friend, you might be here this morning and find yourself living separated from God. Separated from God because in your own arrogance, in your own strength, you have set yourself up in opposition to God by your rejection of Jesus as Lord. And while you might think you reign supreme over your current situation, while you might think that you have a handle on everything that is taking place in your life at this very moment. Hear the words of David. You are not your own. 
You stand under the authority and power of this great and glorious God. Moab, a pagan nation, is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe, and over Philistia I shout in triumph. God, through Christ, has and will one day finally destroy all those who set themselves up in opposition against himself. If you're this person going through this incredible difficulty, if we, as God's people, are the ones going through this incredible difficulty, Hear the hope of this incredible text. We can hope in God who reigns supreme. And notice how David closes this in verses 9 through 12. Israel cries for help, acknowledging that God alone is the one who provides salvation. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies? O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. But verse 12, with God we shall do valiantly, valiantly. It is He who will tread down our foes. God and God alone will be the one who provides us salvation in that moment, in that moment of greatest trial. Don't cast yourself, friend, upon the care of another. Don't cast yourself upon the care of a worldly ideology or philosophy or psychology that runs contrary to the Word of God. Cast yourself. Cast your moment. Cast your circumstance of difficulty upon the one and the one alone who can provide you salvation at this moment. But notice this is a lament, a corporate lament, not of an individual, but of the nation of Israel as the people of God as a whole. In my lifetime, in my lifetime, I understand that is a very short period of time, 1980 until today. In my lifetime, the greatest expression of Christian persecution has occurred over the course of the last two years. In this country, we felt it a little bit. In this state, we felt it a little bit. But even in this country, that expression was varied greatly. The government in California forced churches for months on end 
to be shut. Governments in other parts of the country for more than a year persecuted Christians by prohibiting them from gathering with the people of God in worship of a triune God. And the collective cry of the people of God went forth. There are moments when the people of God corporately cry out to God for help. But as this psalm reminded us, it is a psalm of instruction. That cry for deliverance from God will be a cry that the people of God continually exalt until that moment in which Jesus returns. And might I remind us this morning, as this text of Scripture does in verse 12, look at the end of verse 12, with God we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our what? Foes. Who is or what is the greatest foe against the people of God? It's not your neighbor. It's not the government. It's not the mayor. It's not the governor. It's not the president. It's not the prime minister of Germany. It's not the king of Saudi Arabia. Your greatest foe and my greatest foe is sin. And that sin, James defines it as a devil who is like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. It's at every turn. It's at every corner. It's at every opening of Safari or Google or text message or video game or TV show. It's the way you talk about others. It's your tongue. It's on your lips. And this psalm reminds us, friends, that there is only one way in which that foe is defeated. And that foe is only defeated by the power of the gospel. So this text serves as a means of instruction for you and me to understand that our battle isn't primarily physical in nature, but it is spiritual in nature. And the way that we overcome that battle is when we as faithful followers of Christ join God in his mission by declaring the truth of his word to all peoples. For Jesus said it best when he gave his final instructions to you and to me, to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28. 
Hear the words of Jesus, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and conquer. Go therefore in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and do what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you until the end of the ages." Friends, this is how you and I join David. This is how you and I join the nation of Israel in being part of God's beloved who reign and who conquer. We only conquer through the power of the gospel of Christ. Are you, are you proclaiming that gospel? Are you declaring that gospel? Are you taking this gospel to the doorstep of your enemy? Are you taking this gospel to your children? Are you taking this gospel to your grandchildren? Are you taking this gospel to your neighbor? Woodlawn, are we taking this gospel to our community? Are we taking this gospel to the parishes around us? Are we taking this gospel narrative to our country? Are we taking this gospel narrative to the ends of the earth? David reminds us that when we as God's people faithfully join Christ in proclaiming the gospel, we will prevail over our enemies. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the clear declaration of your word. And it's triumph over our enemies. We ask God that indeed you would cause our hearts to be rested upon this eternal truth. That we would cry out to you and to you alone to provide a means of salvation. That we would cry out to you and to you alone an expression of hope. Knowing that both in our individual expressions and in our corporate expressions. Only you, God, provide salvation. Would you take a few moments where you're seated today, friend, and reflect upon the preaching of this word? If you find yourself separated from God today, would you trust in him? Would you trust in Christ today? Would you believe in Jesus today? For the scripture says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Your life today, friend, can be radically transformed by faith and through faith. Maybe you're at a moment in your life in which you're struggling to trust in God. Would you hear the words of David this morning and increase your confidence in God.
Would you cry out to him this morning from where you're seated? He already knows your heart. He knows your thoughts. Would you express it to him this morning? Perhaps your cry this morning is, Lord, you have rejected me. But would you take hope this morning knowing that you are indeed God's beloved in Christ, and because of your position in Christ, while you might sense God has rejected you, would you know this morning he's not? In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing a song that well describes the state of our own being and our need to hope exclusively in God. If you're here today, friends, and you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, Myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. We would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. But friend, you don't have to come forward and speak to one of us. You can turn to someone seated next to you. For there are plenty of people seated around you who would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in God. Secondly, maybe you'd like for one of us to pray with you. That like Israel, like David... And like me at so many times, we struggle due to a circumstance, a situation, and we fail to trust God rightly. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God is impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Him. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Would you stand with me now as we sing to him?